So how many of you had have heard it prayed, the words prayed, or uh, have prayed them yourself? I plead the blood of Jesus. Mm. Show of hands. You've heard it before. Maybe prayed it before. Mm. I plead the blood of Jesus. What, uh, what does it mean, though? What does that mean? What's, uh, what's it mean to plead the blood of Jesus? I want to I wanna take a look at that today. I mean, what's, what's the idea behind a plea, you know? Um, if you think about a courtroom, judge looks at you and says, How do you plea? What do you say? Not guilty. Hopefully not guilty, right? Or you're asked a, an incriminating question. What do you say? I plead, the fifth. I plead the, my Fifth Amendment rights. Mm. If I answer that, I will be incriminating myself. So it's a, it's, it's a right uh, that we have here, fortunately, in this, in this uh, country of ours. Um, to plea, uh, it, it means to make a statement um, that says, this applies to me. This is the state of a thing, right? But my question is, is it biblical? Is it biblical to say, I plead the blood of Jesus? <coughs> right? So I don't know. Is it? What are, your, what are your thoughts? Is it biblical? Because nowhere in Scripture will you ever see, read the words, I plead the blood of Jesus. It's not in there. There's absolutely no place where those words are used or demonstrated. Used anywhere, I plead the blood of Jesus. But does that mean that it's wrong? Is it wrong to say it? Is it wrong to pray that? Well, you know, and you might say something similar. You may have heard or said in your own prayers uh, something that's somewhat similar to that, saying, I put it under the blood of Jesus. Or you might tell a friend, put it under the blood of Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. I may have heard that or used that expression before. Mm -hmm. yeah. We just sang an entire song about We that. just sang <laughs> about the blood of Jesus, didn't we? But the idea of placing something under the blood of Jesus, is that even biblical? Because you won't actually find it in Scripture. You won't find those words in Scripture. There's a lot of things that we say in our Christ, Christendom, our Christianese, as they like to say, and we, it, where it's not even in Scripture. Like the, the, the term rapture. Everybody's talking about the rapture and the end times. Oh, we're in the end times. You can't find the word rapture in Scripture. It's not there. It's a word that we use to describe something that the Bible talks about. Uh, but we tend to assign words to things, and we use them as if we understand what we're saying. And so many times we don't have any idea. Months ago, I did a teaching called In the Name of Jesus. Do you remember that one? Because we use that term, that phrase all the time, in the name of Jesus. And we tack it on to our prayers as if it's like the magic words that's gonna make God do the thing that we're saying. We don't realize what we're saying when we say in the name of Jesus. I did a whole teaching on that, so go back and check it out. Um, it's, it, was, it was, I believe, on the podcast as well. 
I think this one's another one when we say, now in the name of Jesus is clearly in scripture, right? We see that immediately after, after uh, the Holy Spirit falls, they go into the, John and right, uh, 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 Peter and John go into the temple and there's the lame man and, and you know, he's asking for money and they say, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Mm -hmm. And you see that over and over and over again. Clearly there's a, there's a precedent for using this term, the name or the, that phrase in the name of Jesus. But what about in, I plead the blood of Jesus? It's not in there. Or I put it under the blood. All right, so does it make it wrong to, to pray in this way, though? Now, some circles, such, such as your very you know, strict reformists, would say it's absolutely wrong. Because you never see it in Scripture, you never... You, you don't pray it, they're mad, you know, and, and they get very upset, in fact. Some get very, very upset with the charismatics who use that term all the time. Charismatics are on the other end of the spectrum, and they say, it's absolutely right. In fact, if you want to cast out a devil, you got to put, you know, you got to plead the blood of Jesus, right? Um, and, and so there's, there's this, like, span of, of understanding about that thing, right? So what do we say? What do we teach? Is that right or is it wrong? No. Uh, I think if any of you guys know me, I'm not one that says, is it A or is it B? <laughs> Often when I, when I go to the Lord, he says it's not A or it's B, it's C. It's something completely different. And I would say in this particular view, uh, my view, my personal view on this, what I understand in script, Scripture, both are right. It's... It, it's both good and, but it also comes with a big, should come with a big warning. Yeah. So, all right, let's look at, uh, let's look at this idea of, of pleading the blood of Jesus. Let's just talk about the blood a, a little bit here. So what we're going to do, and I'm continuing in my study uh, of the Old Testament, I'm in Exodus. And so let's go to Exodus here. Uh, we're going to, uh, I'll be jumping around a lot. So if you just want to kind of read along, but um be kind of going through Exodus 8 through 10, um, different parts between Exodus chapter 8 and chapter 10. This is all about uh, the exodus of the Israelites out of Egypt, right? So as you're kind of turning there, a little bit of backstory, uh, where I want to go on this first is that we know the story. So Joseph came to Egypt, the brothers came to Egypt, and the family came to Egypt because there was a plague and, and all of that, and, and uh, they were saved, and they began to, they were given a track of land, uh, a very nice uh, Goshen, um, nice area of land, and the Israelites for began to populate. They, you know, they got bigger and bigger and bigger and so was, until they were such a massive amount of people that a later Pharaoh, who didn't know the, Joseph, uh, began to get scared because uh, they were getting so powerful and so mighty they were afraid that if any time the Israelites wanted to overthrow the Egyptian government, they could do that and take over the land. And so what they did is they assigned taskmasters and forced them into slave labor. And this went on for 400 years. Mm -hmm. So finally, God allows them, this people, to grow under harsh conditions and slavery until... Their, the Bible says that their prayers reached his ears and he looked at them 
And he said, uh, he says, I got to do something about this. So he raises up Moses, who grew up in Pharaoh's house. Look the story yourself. And uh, was in this time, place of hiding. And, and he, um, he, he calls him through the burning bush. Right? You can see Charleston Heston. <laughs> right? You can see, you can see all, all right, that, old, that old movie. Yeah. Um, talking to this burning bush. And Jesus, it was a theophany. It was Christ in the bush. It was the angel of the Lord speaking to him in the bush. All that kind of stuff. Anyway, let my people go. The whole thing. He says, I'm going to go, and you're going to, you're going to go to Pharaoh, and you're going to tell, let my people go so that they can worship me out in the wilderness, three days journey out. And Pharaoh says, no. And so God says, well, tell Pharaoh that there's going to be plagues coming on you. In fact, there were 10 plagues, one after the next. I don't know how long there was in between the plagues. The Bible doesn't really say. We don't know how long the plagues went on. It was for days or weeks or months. We don't know. There's a, the element of time is not really included there. It doesn't matter, but there's 10 plagues, and there's so much that we could teach and, and learn from those 10 plagues. But one of the things about the 10 plagues is the 10 plagues spoke directly to 10 specific gods of Egypt. Mm -hmm. Each plague had a meaning. There's flies, and there's gnats, and there's boils, and there's uh, water turning to blood, and all of these kinds of things. Horrible things, right? And there was so much in there that we could talk about, but we're going to talk about that today. Um, but as I was reading this, and I've read this story so many times, talked about and taught on this story so many times, but this time going through it, I noticed something I didn't really notice before. And the beautiful way that God does that. Taste it again for the first time, right? The Word of God is living and active. Just that mm -hmm. If you ever think you know it and you got a good handle on it, Sorry, you don't. There's more for you to be, to be revealed to you. And I was going through this again. I'm going to read to you uh, five uh, excerpts of Scripture, starting in eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 22. And I'm going to go through these five. And as I go through these five, and I'm not reading the whole bit on, the, on, on each of these plagues, but there, were, there's a, there was something common and I want to see if you can figure out what this, the commonality between these five are. Remember, there were ten plagues. Five of them say something very specific, though, that we need to, to catch. All right. Exodus 8, 22, and 23. This is the, the plague of the flies. This is the fourth plague. Verse 22 says, But on the day I will give special treatment to the land of Goshen. Where, where did the Israelites live? Live? In Goshen. Okay, this is where the Israelites lived among Egypt. I'll give special treatment to the land of Goshen where my people are living. No flies will be there. This way you will know that I, the Lord, am in the land and I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will take place tomorrow. Exodus 9.4 plague of the death of the livestock. It's the fifth plague. Verse 4 says this, but the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that the Israel, Israelites own will die. Exodus 9, 25 and 26, the seventh plague, the plague of hail. 
hail so big that if any, anyone got hit by this hail, they would instantly die. Verse 25, throughout the land of Egypt, the hail struck down everything in the field, both people and animals. The hail beat down every plant of the field and shattered every tree in the field. Can you imagine how horrible? Verse 26, the only place it didn't hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites lived. <laughs> Moving over to Exodus 10, 22 and 23, this is the ninth plague, the plague of darkness. Darkness that was so bad they could feel it. That's some darkness that you could feel. Verse 22 says, So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness throughout the land of Egypt for three days. One person could not see another, and for three days they did not move from where they were. Yet all the Israelites had light where they lived. <laughs> and finally, the tenth plague the death of the firstborn, Exodus 11, 4. I'm going to read 4 through 7. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt, and every firstborn male in the land of Egypt will die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, to the firstborn of the servant girl, who is at the grindstones as well as every firstborn of the livestock. Then there will be a great cry of anguish through all of the land of Egypt, such as, was, as never was before or never will be again, but against, but against all the Israelites, whether people or animals, not even a dog will snarl. Mm -hmm so that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. What do you notice about those five? There's a divine separation. There's a divine separation. Now, the other five plagues doesn't specifically say those kinds of things. Now, we can draw a couple assumptions from that, that the Israelites actually suffered through it as well, like the boils or the frogs. You could make that assumption and maybe be accurate. You could also make this assumption, because it says this about these five, it also applies to the other five. You could make that assumption. But just know they're both assumptions. We don't know. We don't know. So don't make a doctrine out of it. But I will say that for these five, the Lord wanted to do something very specific. Clearly the plagues brought on Egypt was to allow for the Israelites to be freed from their slavery. That was a point. That was a very big point and probably one of the biggest points. Of, of the plagues of Egypt, but it wasn't the only point that he was trying to make. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the only reason that there were five, uh, that there were 10 plagues. It also was to demonstrate that there was a distinction between the Israelites and e Egyptians. Mm -hmm. 
these two groups of people were not the same. God did not see them the same. And he wanted not only the Egyptians to understand that, but the Israelites mm -hmm. to understand it. Mm -hmm. He said, this will be a sign to you. I will demonstrate that I am. He was speaking to the Israelites. You need to see that there's a difference between you and them. And it's going to be done through supernatural protection. <clears throat> supernatural protection. There was going to, we were going to see before our eyes great exploits before, of the Lord. We were going to see incredible, I mean supernatural, powerful moves of God that cannot be described or explained by any other means other than it was God. And you're going to see some, a group of people suffering under it and you're going to see a, a group of people supernaturally protected from mm -hmm. it. And the one that amazes me among them all is the light one. Because mm -hmm. Egypt was completely in darkness, so dark that they could feel it, that they couldn't even see. We're as close as we are to each other sitting right here. I couldn't see you and you couldn't see me. Now, no, very few of us ever experienced that level of darkness, right? And for three days. Now, you know when it's that dark that there is a way for ambient light to come through. You can have a city that is 10 miles away and you will see ambient light coming from that. You will see that light coming through. And yet, and yet, the Israelites had light and the, the Egyptians could not receive any of their light. Their ambient light coming from Israel in Goshen did not travel over to bring any kind of relief or refreshment from the Egyptians. There was a clear distinction between them. How in the world does that happen? The only thing I can describe is that the Bible says it was a light, a darkness that they could feel. That I believe it had a substance of it. They could feel it. It was something in the air and did not allow light to pass through it. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It could have been something else. It doesn't matter. The point is there was a distinction. Mm -hmm. And I bet... Could you imagine being in the area of Goshen, having light and looking all the way, 360 degrees around you, and suddenly you see this abyss of darkness? Mm -hmm. Could you imagine what that looked like from the Israelites' perspective? Could you imagine that they traveled in, for, to the edge of their land, the edge of Goshen, and to see almost what could potentially look like a canopy of absolute and complete darkness now did it fade into that was it a, a wall like the the waters that split where there's a wall on the left and a wall on the right when they pass through i don't know the bible doesn't tell us it doesn't matter but i can guarantee you there was a boundary of light versus darkness one that they could see could you imagine what that did? Or when they were traveling at the edge of Goshen and they saw these horrible hailstorms happening that's crushing everything around them, but yet it just doesn't pass this, what seems like an invisible barrier. And they're seeing the safety and the protection of their God. Could you imagine what that does to them in that visual? When they see it, when they hear, smell the stench of the, in the, the death of the livestock or the flies and all these things, 
and it just just stops where they are. And clearly, the death of the firstborn, mm-hmm. which brings us back. Remember, we are we're, we're exploring this thing where we say, "I plead the blood of Jesus." Mm-hmm. So follow with me. Follow with me on this. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what does this have to do? What does this have to do with pleading the blood of Jesus? Now, if you can turn with me, Exodus chapter 12. Uh, I think we're going to go, let me see. Let's do 1 through 13. I'm going to go ahead and read this. Normally I like to have other people uh, read it, but I'm just going to go ahead and read it for just just so um, we can move through this quickly. Exodus chapter 12, uh, 1 through 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of of Egypt. You must have an unblemished animal, a year old male. You may take it from either the sheep or of the goats. You are to keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. They will take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts of the uh, and the lintel of the houses where they eat them. They are to eat the meat that night. They should eat it roasted over the fire along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or, uh, or cooked in boiling water, but only roasted over fire its head as well as its legs and inner organs. You must not leave any of it until morning, and any part of it left until morning you must burn. Here is how you must eat it. You must be dressed for travel, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You are to eat it in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. Verse 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt on the night, on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. I am the Lord. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. Remember what I said before, all the plagues dealt with a god, right? He's, dis- he's also drawing a distinction between deities the gods of Egypt versus the one true God verse 13 get this the blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you when I see the blood I will pass over you no plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. What is the distinguishing mark? Blood. Blood. The blood. Blood of the land. The blood on the houses where you're staying will be a distinguishing mark. So in the light of in revelation of Jesus, we know this Passover was a prophetic picture of Jesus' ultimate sacrifice, right? For us, so that we would not receive the same judgment that comes 
on the sinner, the unredeemed. And we know this, right? This is clearly a prophetic picture. The Jews today who don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah is still practicing the Seder meal, the Passover meal that he just described here with the hopes that the Messiah will still be coming. But the ones who have received the revelation of Jesus, both Jew and Gentile, understand that that Passover, what we refer to as the Lord's Supper, has been fulfilled in him. Now we look at it and we celebrate that Seder meal, that Passover meal, from the light of Jesus as a that foreshadowed Christ. And now it has been fulfilled. So that's why in our communion, we celebrate that having known that the Messiah has already come and he has paid the price. He was the spotless lamb without blemish, right? That they had to go. And he is consumed, let me say this respectfully, by us when he says, unless you are willing to eat my flesh and drink my blood, right? You have no part of me. It was a consuming of the sacrifice. It's a receiving of him, the sacrifice. But the thing that distinguished in this instance, back in this time, the Israelites from the Egyptians was what? The blood. Mm -hmm. But the blood where? The blood on the doorpost of the house. Okay? So they would take hyssop and they would dip it. Do a study on hyssop sometime in Scripture. Always deals with redemption. It always deals with, um, what did Paul say? Purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Psalm 51, where he's repenting after his sin with Bathsheba. Hyssop is very uh, powerful in in. Uh, Old Testament uh, uh, stories because of because it's always associated with deliverance, with repentance, with getting right, mm-hmm. right? So they dip this hyssop into the blood where they just sacrifice the animal and then they paint the, do- paint the doorposts, okay? And that's a beautiful picture of the cross because it, the blood would run down. So the doorposts and the lintel, it says specifically. So the doorposts, and the lintel, the vertical wood, and the horizontal wood. It, even in that, it speaks of the beautiful picture of Christ, his sacrifice, his blood sacrifice that fell on the vertical and the horizontal wood of the cross. And it would fall down and it would make this cross pattern, okay? This is what the, they had to do. And then it says here that They had to do this as a symbol of the house. It was done on the door, but it was the blood on the house where you are staying. The blood on the door was uh, applied to the entire house, the dwelling place that these that the the Israelites were staying, where they lived. The house is symbol symbolic of our lives. Mm-hmm. The doorpost is symbolic of our heart. The song that we sang earlier, there was the blood applied, right? 
applied to our hearts. We just sang about that. The blood is applied to our hearts. When you apply it to your heart, that the heart is the thing that you let in. It decides what you let into your house. That's the door, right? You enter and exit through the door. Is the blood of Christ covering the entrance and the exit of your heart, of your life, your house? Okay? So the house is symbolic of our lives. The, the door is symbolic of our heart. The blood on the doorpost is a cleansing, a protection of our dwelling place, which is our lives, right? If you are in Jesus, if you know Jesus as your personal Lord, Savior, you've given your life to him, his blood has been applied to, has been, past tense, applied to the doorpost of your heart. When God looks at you, remember what this says here in verse, in verse 13. The blood on the houses is where you are staying. Uh, the blood on the houses where you're staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. When I see the blood, you've got, don't miss that. God is not looking at you. He's not looking for you and for your righteousness. He's looking for the blood. He's looking for the blood. He's going around and looking for the blood. He's looking for Jesus on you. When he goes around the earth and he's looking at the people of the earth, all the people, his eyes scanning to and from, to and fro, Looking on the, he's not looking for special people. He's <coughs> looking for those who carry the mark of his son. That's what he's looking for. That's good. This has nothing to do with you. If he's, when he's looking for those who he is going to partner with, when he is going to use for his glory, when he's going to keep in his house forever as a son or as a daughter, he's not looking at your characteristics, your personality, or how good you think you are. He's looking for the blood. Because the blood is the thing that qualifies you to be received into his house and his family. It has nothing to do with how, what you've accomplished. It has nothing to do with who you are. It has nothing to do with your culture. It doesn't even have anything to do with your bloodline. Now, the Israelites were an early picture of the church, but it had nothing to do with the Israelites being special that he so chose them because they were worthy of him it wasn't that at all just like none of us are worthy of christ we are not worthy of him but when we humbly receive him now we receive worth and value but not because of us but because of the blood applied to us jesus blood applied to us there is no room no room for pride in the body of Christ. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble because the humble know that we've done nothing to deserve God's favor. We've done nothing to deserve God's protection. 
He gives it to us only through the blood of Christ, through his grace and his mercy for us, okay? You all with me? Yes. I plead the blood of Jesus. We're still, we're still working on this. But let's understand what, this, what we're saying here, right? Now, let's look down a bit further. Chapter 12, verse 21 to 23. All you gotta do is scan down a little bit further in the chapter. This jumped out at me and slapped me in the face when I read it the other day. Exodus 21, uh, 12, 21. Then Moses summoned all the elders of the Israel and said, Go select an animal from the flock according to your families and slaughter the Passover meal. Take the cluster of hyssop, dip it in the blood that's in the basin, and brush the lintel and the two doorposts with, the, with the, uh, the, the same, some of the blood of the basin. None of you may go out the door of his house until morning. When the Lord passes through to strike Egypt and seize the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, he will pass over the door and not let the destroyer enter your houses to strike you. Now, did you catch that really, 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 really important piece of information? Anybody pick it out? Because I kind of highlighted it in my voice. What, what, what is it? Don't go outside. Don't go outside. Don't go outside. Stay in the house. Stay in the house. The blood is your protection. The moment you leave it, you come out from under the protection of the blood. This takes obedience. This takes obedience. Now, this is an important point. Follow me. We're going somewhere on this. This is an important point. In the same way that the Israelites had to follow instructions to receive their deliverance, so do we. In the same way that the Israelites had to follow instructions to receive their deliverance, so do we. We too can step outside of God's protection. Now, wait. Before, before you say to me that, that we have, you know, that uh, don't accuse me of having to earn our salvation or that God's protection, you know, he picks and chooses and, you know, he's, he's, gonna, he's quick to punish us and all of this. I'm not saying any of that. Our God is so graceful and so merciful and he works with us. And I'm not saying that the moment you sin, that God is ready with a hammer to crush you and say, whoop, you know, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about like extreme Armenianism that says, well, if Jesus comes back and you're in an R-rated movie theater, whoop, you're missing it. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to be taken. I'm not going that route. I'm not saying those things, but I'm also not a Calvinist either. Mm-hmm. And saying mm-hmm. that your soul is fully secure. I'm somewhere in the medium because you can't say Arminianism is, you can't prove Arminianism through Scripture. You can't prove Calvinism through Scripture fully. It's always somewhere in the middle. I'm not saying any of that. What I am saying is that we may have the blood of Jesus applied to our heart and we are eternally in his hands. Yes, our spirit is eternally saved. But we also, through disobedience, we can forget about his blood and do things that bring harsh consequences to our lives. Now, what do I mean by that? Would, if, if there was a few families in Israel 
that stupidly, <laughs> stupidly, after all these warnings and after nine incredible plagues that they witnessed, stupidly did not heed Moses and what God told Moses and Moses delivered to the people. And that night decided that when they woke up, that they needed to go out to the outhouse. I don't know if they had indoor plumbing. <laughs> and said, well, I know what God said, but I really got to pee. <laughs> and gets up and just decides, God will be okay with this. God will be okay with this. I'm going to go ahead and disobey what he says, but he'll be okay with it. And I'm going to run out. And I'm going to... It could be for legitimate reasons, okay, is what I'm trying to say. Or they just disregard it entirely and don't do those things. And they come out of that. They Maybe they do and they paint the thing, but they leave the house for whatever reason, legitimate or not a legitimate reason. And a death angel passes by, what's going to happen? They're going to die. Because he said that. They're going to die, right? They're going to go outside of the house. They're going to go outside of that protection. They're going to have an issue. But is God still delivering Israel? Yeah, he is. He's still moving them forward. But there could have been those who suffered great consequences in it. Because they stepped out of the protection. They went out of the house. I'm not trying to take too much. I'm just trying to draw your attention to the illustration of how we live our Christian lives. That we come to Jesus, we say, Jesus, I receive you. Jesus, I recognize that you uh, have bled and died for my sin. I submit myself to you. I repent of my sins. And we start this journey with Jesus. And then the, the cares of this life begin to wear on us at certain times and become too hard. And then all of a sudden we forget that we are under the blood in the protection of Christ and we leave the house mm. and then we wonder why we suffer consequences. Mm -hmm. See where I'm going? Mm -hmm. Okay. What does James say? James chapter 4, starting 4, four through 10. <laughs> James, I love James. The brother of Jesus, he doesn't pull any punches. You can tell this dude grew up with Jesus. <laughs> Verse 4, you adulterous people. <laughs> I love it. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend, to, uh, whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Dis that, doesn't that sound like distinction between the two? Mm -hmm. Distinction, guys. Keep that word resonating in your, in your mind. Whoever wants to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit, the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. He will lift you up. 
He is saying, guys, there's a distinction between you and the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. You are to live differently because you are under the blood. But he's warning them because we often leave the house. We step out and we forget that we're to be under the, and remain under the protection of the blood. And then there's consequences that come. He's talking about us deliberately choosing to stay in the house. You gotta have a life that deliberately chooses to stay in the house. Amen. Stay in the house. Stay in the house. You leave the house, there's consequences. So stay in the house. Stay under the protection of the blood. Applied. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 3, 12 and 7, through 17. Nah, through 15. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, hay, uh, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work uh, that has that he has. Oh, let me say that again. Whew, I'll get it. Out. If if anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And what is Paul saying here? He goes, look, you might step out of the protection of the house and suffer incredible loss. I'm not saying you're necessarily losing your salvation. Your spirit is still, your house has the blood on it, marked with, but I'm telling you what, your mind, will, and emotions, and probably your body are gonna get beat up real bad. You are gonna suffer incredible loss. I know, and this is why I see so many Christians who are absolutely, genuinely God-fearing, you know, blood-bought blood Christians who have genuinely are, are brothers and sisters in Christ that are living lives with absolute ridiculous consequences from the actions that they're making because they continue to for, forget that the blood has been applied to them and they leave the protection of that and they step out of the house and they're suffering consequences because they forgot and they are not putting their full hope and trust in the blood applied to their lives. I'm not saying that they're necessarily losing their salvation, but boy, I'll tell you what, they're gonna get to the end of this life and they're going to say, wow, that was hard. Oh, that was a difficult life. And God said, it didn't have to be that way. Mm -hmm. You kept leaving the house. I warned you. I told you. And you kept leaving the house. Mm -hmm. And they're the same ones that point their finger at God and say, God, why did you give me such a bad deal? Mm -hmm. And he's pointing back and he says, I told you to get in the house and stay there but you kept leaving. 
He kept leaving the protection. And this is what Paul was talking about and James was talking about. And there, there are many other scriptures in the New Testament. And it says, listen, guys, you have been bought with a price. A price. Live like it. Let your work, let your words, let your actions be worthy of the calling that is placed Amen. on you. Start living the life. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. Amen. This is what we're talking about. I'm talking about real believers who are completely weak, completely beat up, completely defeated. And I would say, in a lot of instances, demonized. Because we open the door, we leave the protection that God has commanded, we go and we do sinful things, take on and look to other things other than, so I see demonized, addicted, defeated Christians who are real Christians. Mm -hmm. They're really under the blood and they're completely bound up. Mm -hmm. They're completely full of anxiety and depression addicted to things, hating it, not knowing how they even got there. Mm -hmm. Because it was a slow compromise. It was like, I really need to go out and use the restroom in the middle of the night when the death angel is passing over. God will understand. No, he won't. Because he gave you a command and the command was to protect you. Don't take circumstances into your own hand and rationalize what you feel God's going to be okay with and what he's not. He gave you the word to protect you. He gave you the blood of Christ to protect you. And when you step out of that because you think you know better, don't blame God when things go sideways. You start fumbling around and fiddling around with, with a sin and saying, God will be okay with this. I'm under the blood. It's okay. He loves me. Right? He'll, he'll understand. He's full of grace and mercy. Nobody's perfect. Before you know it, that sin, as James talks about, begins to grow. Mm -hmm. And when, it bring, when it's full grown, it what? It brings forth death. death. And then you're wondering where God was all this while. And he says, mm -hmm. I told you. Mm -hmm. I told you. Stay in the house. Stay under the protection of the blood of Christ. There's a distinction between you and the rest of the world. Start living like it. Mm. Mm. I gave you these plagues. I demonstrated for Pharaoh and all the Israelites, yes, but mostly for you. So that you know that you're different. Mm -hmm. And that you know that I am different from all the gods out there in the world. Stay in the house. Don't get caught up with these things. Don't, don't fiddle around with and experiment with sinful things. If you do that in these little compromises before you know it, that, that thing is going to have you. It's going to own you. And, and the devil and, and sin is so seductive and so sly and so that it's just a little compromise by a little compromise and before you know it, before you know it, it does that thing. It, 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 it fulfills that, that expression that I heard years ago. Sin will take you where you didn't intend to go. It'll make you stay longer than you intended to stay. And it will cost you more than you ever intended to pay. Mm -hmm.
Stay in the house. Stay in the house takes sacrifice. It takes obedience. It takes work. James just talked about the work. Paul, excuse me, Paul just talked about the work. The work is how you live your life. The work is how you submit to God's commands and, and, and to his, his ways and his standard of righteousness. The work is going against the flow and the popular beliefs that are out in, in the world. The, it, the work is taking a stand for righteousness when all of the world is saying, it's okay, live a little. So, let's go back to this idea of praying, we plead the blood of Jesus or we put it under the blood of Jesus. What do you think now? What are your thoughts? Based on everything that we talked about, what's coming out? Basically, you can't go to God and plead the blood of Jesus if you're living in sin or harboring some sort of sin in your heart because you're ultimately stepping out of the house as, you, as we speak. And so that's just kind of just a... You're, the only one you're fooling is yourself. You're not fooling God. You might be fooling the people around you. You might be fooling yourself, but you're not fooling God. You're not fooling God. No. You know what Revelation chapter 12, verse 11 says? They conquered him, the devil, mm -hmm. who's the prince of the power of the air. He's the prince of this world. He designs all the mess in this world to pull you away from God. All the entertainment and the enticements of the world to pull you away from God. He's the one that wants to bind you. He's the one that wants to get you completely powerless. Mm -hmm. He might not be able to take your salvation, but he really wants to make you ineffective for God. Mm -hmm. All right? Revelation 12, 11 said, they conquered him. How? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they did not love their lives even to the point of death. And I was thinking about that. I was thinking about that. The blood, as we've just talked about, is the protection. Right? They overcame because they were protected by the blood. They overcame the enemy because they were submitted to the protection mm -hmm. of the blood, mm -hmm. which is why James says, submit to God, resist the devil, mm -hmm. and he'll flee from you. It doesn't say, oh, you're a Christian, just resist the devil and he'll flee from you. It doesn't say that. It says first to submit to God. If you're not submitted to God, if you're not in the house, the devil doesn't have to listen to you. That's right. I don't care how you think, mm -hmm. you know, oh, I'm, I'm safe, so the devil has to, no. If you're living in sin, and if you're living in compromise, you give him every legal right to mess with you. It's like you're going into his house. You're playing in his, in his sandbox. And you think you're going to play in his sandbox and he's got to listen to you? No. But when he comes to your house and you're inside the house and the blood of Jesus is on the doorpost of your heart, guess what he cannot do? 
He cannot enter your house. But if you leave your house and you go play in his house, guess what happens? He starts beating you up and you have zero authority over him. Zero. That's why so many people can, they can try to cast out the devil all they want in their lives. But if they're living a life of compromise, guess what? They have zero power Amen. over him. Because they've left the house and they've gone into his house. He's got every right. He can do whatever he wants in his house. He doesn't have the right to be in yours with the blood of Jesus. But you keep leaving the house. And then you don't know why you're so bound up and addicted and depressed and anxious and everything else. Where are you? You got to figure out where am I? Am I in the house or not? They overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. You know what that means? The blood of the lamb is the protection. The word of their testimony, the word of our testimony is the declaration that we are under the protection and the authority of the blood. That's what the word of their testimony was. The word of their testimony was saying, let me tell you what Jesus did in my life. Let me tell you who he is. Let me tell you about the blood of Jesus that was shed for your sin and for mine. Let me tell you, I'm under the blood. That's the word of the testimony. The word of the testimony points to the blood. Amen. It's not and, it's not the blood and. It's not the blood of Christ and, no, it's all the blood of Christ. They overcame because they were under the blood of Christ and they knew they were under the blood of Christ and they testified the fact that they were under the blood of Christ. That's the word of their testimony. And that is how you defeat the devil. Amen. That's how you do it. You get under the blood, you stay under the blood, and then you proclaim the fact that you're under the blood. Hallelujah. That's how it's done. That's how you defeat the enemy. It's not about saying magic words and tacking these Amen. Christian phrases into our prayers and thinking that we're suddenly going to have authority over the enemy and we're going to compel God to move and do what we tell him to. They did not love their lives, even to death. What that speaks of is their absolute submission yeah. to God regardless of what they may suffer for it, regardless of what they would give up, regardless if, if all of the world came against them. They said, I'm under the blood of Jesus. What can you do to me? Go ahead and kill me. I don't care. I'm still under the blood of Jesus. Paul said that. To live is Christ. To die is gain. He goes, the only reason I want to be in this world is because more of you guys got to know him. Otherwise, I'd rather just go to him. Go ahead and kill me. I don't care. They don't love their lives. They're not living for their lives. They're living for the eternal life in his presence. This is just a blip on the, on the timeline of, of life, right? Of all of life, of all of eternity. This is just a little blip here and gone. But we, we live our lives as if it's, this is it. Mm -hmm. That's hopeless, helpless, not under the blood. The blood is eternal. All of this. The blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, not loving their lives, even to the point of death. All of this points to Jesus' sacrifice. And that's it. So, to pray, I plead the blood, or to say, I put it under the blood, it being a circumstance, a person, whatever, 
They're not magic words that forces God's hand or forces the devil to suddenly obey you. That's where I disagree with many charismatics and how they use that, that, that terminology. That's why the, the Reformationists, go, I would say, correctly um, point to the charismatics and say, no, 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 no. That's a, that's a corruption of scripture. It's a misapplication of scripture. And I would agree. It is. If you treat it simply as that, magic words in my prayer. But if you don't actually think of it as a prayer, but a declaration. Amen. Do you hear me? Mm. If you plead the blood of Jesus, mm. not as a prayer, but as a declaration, a word of your testimony, mm. oh man. Mm -hmm. Oh man, does that have power. Oh man, do I have no problem saying, I plead the blood of Jesus. Just like if I'm sitting in a courtroom and the judge says, how do you plead? I plead the blood of Jesus. I'm under the blood and I'm in the house. Amen. Then you absolutely yes. proclaim it. These words are a declaration that we are under the blood, distinct from the rest of the world, submitted to God, and under the full protection and distinctive rights of a, as a child of God, as a son or a daughter. And I'm telling you what, the rest of the world who's not under the blood of Jesus, they don't have that. They can't claim it. That's right. But I can. And I hope you can. That's what it means to plead the blood of Jesus. Don't say it as a prayer of magic words. Say it as a declaration. And let me tell you, when you do, when you're living it, mm -hmm. and you declare that, oh, the demons are going to shudder. They are not going to like you. You know why? Because the demons have a greater revelation of the power of That's blood right. of Jesus mm -hmm. than any of us do. That's exactly right. Any of us do. They know. And the worst possible thing, the worst possible thing that can ever happen to, to them is for you to know. Mm -hmm. Because if you know, yeah. they're toast. Can't touch them. We lost. Move to the next. Mm. Let me see who else is in compromise. Who, who else can I get some compromise? Ah, this person over here. They don't know. It's the <coughs> distinction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We must intend to remain under the blood. We must stay in the house. Amen. Stay in the house. Stay in the house. Stay in the house. It's a real easy say, stay in the house. Right? Every time that you're tempted, every time that you, you start to go back to your old way of life, just tell, speak to yourself and say, stay in the house. Stay in the house. Stay under the blood. Stay there. Don't venture out and get penalized for it. Stay in the house. It's for your protection. It's for your good. It's mercy. It's grace. And by the way, oh man, for those that stayed in the house, which I have, 
understand by scripture they all did, we think. Not only did they get delivered out of their, their slavery, do you know what the Egyptians did? They gave them all their gold and their silver. They blessed them. They're like, can you guys please get out of here? Here, take all my stuff. Take all my silver. Take all my gold. Take all my possessions. Just leave this place. You think, we think sometimes that there's so much more in the world. But if we would stay in the house, God just takes those things and he throws us, he throws us blessings yeah. that we didn't have to toil for it. We didn't have to work for it. We didn't have to take, uh, we didn't have to, not only did we not have to suffer the, the punishments of our sins, we, we get blessings Amen. upon blessings upon blessings. Amen. Sometimes material, sometimes uh, emotional, sometimes family, sometimes experiences. There's blessings comes in all these different ways, not just material. Sometimes it's that. But we receive so many blessings. But that is not why we stay in the house. We stay in the house because we have got a loving God who is not like the gods of this world that are easily defeated by a couple plagues. Easily proven to be worthless and dumb idols. Easily shown how they're going to fall and they're going to fail. But our God, our God, when we simply apply the blood, demonstrates his power and authority to deliver against the greatest, most terrifying odds. Do not worry about tomorrow. Do not worry what is happening in the world. Don't worry about what Fox News is telling you. Don't worry about what you read. Don't worry about what everybody's saying at work. Don't worry. Just stay in the house. Amen. And I promise you, God will deliver you. He will keep Amen. you. Yes. Amen? Amen. 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 Praise the Lord. That's good news, I would say. Amen. Mm -hmm. All right.